When I was little, my grandmother used to buy me comics every week. Some of you might remember the Beano and the Dandy. And if you were a real aficionado, you might remember Buster. Anyone remember that? Yeah, yeah. That was actually my favorite of the multiple comics that I got every week. My grandmother was quite generous, and I wasted a lot of my time. Uh, Along with stories about not very politically correct characters, those comics had lots of puzzles every week. And there was usually one where they gave you two cartoon drawings that looked identical, but they weren't. And the puzzle was to find as many differences between the two pictures as you could. Little details that were in the first complete picture, but not the other one. Maybe someone in the second picture was missing a shoelace or a button off the front of their jacket. You had to look for those kind of details. So when you sat down to look at the page, the question you were asking was, what's wrong with this picture? And that is a question that will help us as we turn to Jeremiah this morning. The key to understanding the passage we're going to look at is not what is in the passage but what's not in it. We're going to pick up this morning at Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 7. If you're using one of the green church Bibles, that's page 804, or in the larger print Bibles, 1245. But before we read, let me remind you of what happened last time because it was hugely significant in the passage we looked at last week. Not just for the people who lived at that time, but for the whole storyline of the Bible. The people of Judah lost the promised land. It was called the promised land because God had promised it to Abraham, the founding father of the Israelites. It was hundreds of years before God's promise to Abraham came true, but eventually Abraham's descendants received the land they had been promised. But last week, we saw them lose it again. After generations of rebellion against God, he finally brought judgment in the form of Babylonian armies who took Jerusalem, burnt it, broke down its walls, and led its people away into exile. The place was in ruins, looted and reduced to rubble. But it was not totally empty. The Babylonians left some of the very poorest people behind. They left them under the authority of a man called Gedaliah. And that's where we pick up this morning. We're going to read from chapter 40, verse 7, through to the end of chapter 41. When all the army officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, as governor over the land and had put him in charge of the men, women, and children who were the poorest in the land and who had not been carried into exile to Babylon, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan and Jonathan, the sons of Kareah, Sariah, son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, then a Tophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of the Machathite, and their man. 
Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay in Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. But you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and olive oil, and put them in your storage jars, and live in the towns you have taken over. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, Edom, and all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah, and had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, from all the countries where they had been scattered. And they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers still in the open country, came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Don't you know that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Kareah, said privately to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, son of Kareah, Don't do such a thing. What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, who was of royal blood and had been one of the king's officers, came with ten men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. While they were eating together there, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Ishmael also killed all the men of Judah who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes, and cut themselves came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. When he met them, he said, Come to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. When they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the men who were with him, slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. But ten of them said to Ishmael, Don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, olive oil and honey hidden in a field. So he let them alone and did not kill them with the others. Now the cistern where he threw all the bodies of the men he had killed, along with Gedaliah, was the one King Asa had made as part of his defense against Basha, king of Israel. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, filled it with the dead. Ishmael made captives of all of the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, along with all the others who were left there, over whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. 
when Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had committed, they took all their men and went to fight Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael had with him saw Johanan, son of Kareah, and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mizpah turned and went over to Johanan, son of Kareah. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped with Johanan from Johanan and fled to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the people of Mizpah who had survived whom Johanan had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after Ishmael had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. The soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had recovered from Gibeon. And they went on, stopping at Geruth, Kimham, near Bethlehem, on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. This is God's word. And the first thing we find in this passage is hope among the ruins. Before they left, the Babylonians put Gedaliah in charge. I say put him in charge. It wasn't really much of an honor, though. It's a bit like being installed as manager of a football team who've just been relegated all the way down from the Premier League down to the non-league. The stands are empty and all the good players have left. Being in charge of that isn't a very appealing responsibility to have. Gadaliah's situation is a bit like that, only much, much worse. Because this isn't a football team, This is the dregs of a broken, destitute people living in a devastated place. But Gedaliah seems to be a decent man who genuinely works to make a success of the situation. And soon, people begin to appear. Chapter 40, verse 7 says, The first to come out of hiding are all the army officers and their men who were still in the open country. So these are groups of Judean soldiers who had not been in Jerusalem during the siege. But they didn't desert. They stayed with their commanding officer. Today we might call them insurgents. They're guerrilla fighters who've been living away from the towns and the cities. And when they realize the Babylonians are gone, they cautiously drift back to see what Gedaliah has planned. And if you look at verse 9, we're told, Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men, do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay in Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. But you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and olive oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you've taken over. Gedaliah explains his policy. We're not going to rebel against Babylon. Instead, we're going to put all of our energy into making the best of what we've got here. Yes, the Babylonians will be keeping an eye on us. I will take care of dealing with them. 
and we'll begin to build a life here again. We know from the timing of events here, the Babylonians left just before the grapes, dates, and figs would have ripened. So although this huge army that's just left has devoured all the grain in the land, there's at least some summer fruit that can be picked. And since the number of people is very small, they should have enough to get them through the winter until they can plant and try to start again. Gadaliah is getting a plan going. And by now, word has begun to spread further afield. Look at verse 11. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, and Edom, and all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, from all the countries where they had been scattered. And they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Moab, Ammon, and Edom are countries around Judah. It seems people had gone there as refugees to escape from the Babylonians. Now they begin to drift back, though. The picture is beginning to look bright. The end of verse 12 even uses the word abundance. They might not have much, but since they're a small group at this stage, they do have plenty to go around. It will be a struggle to get things going again, but if they band together under Gedaliah's leadership, it looks really hopeful. This has the feel of a fresh start. And there are even hints that this little community might see the fulfillment of the bright future God has promised. Those promises came back in chapters 30 to 33 in the section known as the Book of Consolation. Those promises spoke about new wine and olive oil and fruit. Maybe this is the people who will receive God's new covenant blessings. There is hope among the ruins. But soon the promising picture disintegrates. The next section of our passage tells us about sabotage. Gedaliah sets up his headquarters at a place called Mizpah. Archaeologists are still debating among themselves where that is exactly. They've narrowed it down to one of two different places. One of them is eight miles north of Jerusalem. The other one is five miles north. So either way, it's just a few miles above the destroyed city. That's where the army officers have congregated. And one of them brings a warning to Gedaliah in verse 13. Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Don't you know that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Kareah, said privately to Gedaliah in Mizpah, Let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life? And cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, son of Kareah, don't do such a thing. What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. 
So Johanan's accusation is that Ishmael is working for the Ammonites. They are hostile to Babylon, and killing the governor of Judah would certainly annoy Babylon. And Johanan knows what that would do to this fragile little group. The Babylonians would just come and obliterate them. Johanan cares about what is being built in the ruins of Judah. He doesn't want it to be lost. So he says to Gedaliah, let me take Ishmael out. I'll do it quietly. There will be no ripples. The Ammonites will never admit they were trying to undermine us. And the Babylonians will have no reason to come down on us. But Gedaliah says, I forbid you to do it. And I think you're lying about Ishmael. We're trying to nurture life here, not carry on the war. We need to move beyond suspicion and vendettas and revenge. We can't kill someone just because of a rumor. Leave Ishmael alone. Gedaliah wants peace. He wants to believe the best about people. But as one writer says, he listened too little and trusted too much. In fact, he is so dismissive of what Johanan said, he hosts a private dinner for Ishmael and ten of Ishmael's men. Sharing a meal meant a lot more in this culture than it does today in ours. Sharing bread together was a sign of togetherness and trust. You were brothers if you ate together. But the beginning of chapter 41 tells us, during that meal, Ishmael and his men get up and kill Gedaliah. And the Judean officers who were with him and the bodyguards he'd been given by the Babylonians. In terms of numbers, Gedaliah's group might have been a match for Ishmael, Ishmael and his ten men, but Ishmael succeeds because he has the element of surprise. He was not suspected, despite all Johanan had told Gedaliah. So the Ammonites have succeeded. Their agent Ishmael has done what they wanted. They've succeeded in annoying Babylon. And they're not going to get the blame for it. But Ishmael doesn't stop there. His mission apparently was just to kill Gedaliah. But now he goes on the rampage. Have a look at chapter 41, verse 4. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes, and cut themselves came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria are all places in the north of Israel. They're part of the northern kingdom that was destroyed 135 years before this. These men live in that other ruined place. But they obviously have some kind of concern for worshiping the Lord. They've heard about the devastation of Jerusalem, including the temple in Jerusalem, and they've come down to mourn with their brothers in the south. I say they worship the Lord, but they also seem fairly ignorant of the Lord's word. As a sign of their deep mourning, they shave their hair and they tear their clothes. That was standard if you were in distress. But verse 5 says they also cut themselves. That was standard among pagan religions, but it was clearly forbidden in God's law. So these men from the north are not exactly 
orthodox worshipers of the Lord. But what is significant here is the potential of their visit. For generations, there's been deep division between the northern and the southern kingdoms. They share the same heritage of God's blessing, but they've been enemies. But these 80 mourning men are a sign of new possibilities. They are a reason to hope. Maybe north and south can be united again. Isn't that what God promised in the book of Consolation? There'd be one people. Maybe under Gedaliah's leadership it can happen. But, of course, it's all coming a day too late. Gedaliah is dead already. And soon this group of northerners is dead as well. Ishmael invites them to come and meet Gedaliah. Then he kills 70 of them and throws them in a cistern where he's already thrown the bodies of Gedaliah and his men. That's 10 of the northerners off because they bribe him with promises of wheat and barley and so on. But still, the body count is getting pretty high. Verse 9 says, The cistern was filled with the dead. Just weeks ago, things had been so hopeful, so much potential, but it's all dissolved into a bloody, horrible mess. But let's stay with this because very soon there is some success to report. Ishmael hasn't killed absolutely everyone in Mizpah. There are some left, including the king's daughters, which likely means King Zedekiah's daughters. We know that the Babylonians killed his sons in front of his eyes before they put out his eyes. Maybe they left his daughters behind as a way of causing Zedekiah even more pain. They weren't allowed to go with their father to comfort him in his darkness. He had to march to Babylon alone. In any case, these daughters of the king are among Ishmael's captives. And he heads towards Ammon. Maybe he's going to collect payment for what he's done. But at this point, our old friend Johanan shows up. He obviously wasn't at Mizpah when the massacre happened. But verse 11 tells us, when Johanan, son of Kareh, and all the army officers who were with him, heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had committed, they took all their men and went to fight Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael had with him saw Johanan, son of Kareah, and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mizpah turned and went over to Johanan, son of Kareah. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped from Johanan and fled to the Ammonites. Ishmael escapes, but Johanan is successful in the sense that he gets these captives back. They've lost a lot in a few days. But we might imagine maybe they can still rebuild Judah. We might think that, but this little group gave up on rebuilding. They run. Verse 16, Then Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the people of Mizpah who had survived, whom Johanan had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after Ishmael had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had recovered from Gibeon. And they went on, stopping at Garuth Kimham near Bethlehem 
on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ismael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Yes, they've had a brief moment of success against Ishmael, but all these people feel is fear. The Babylonians gave them a leader. That leader has been assassinated, and the Babylonians aren't going to worry about the finer details of who did it. All hope for Judah's future has gone. It looks so positive for the little group who came together in the ruins. But the new life they'd begun to build is smashed all to pieces. That's the picture as it is presented to us. From new hope amidst the ruins to overwhelming fear and loss as they run towards Egypt. So now we need to come back to the question we started with. Now is the time for your input as we ask the question, what's wrong with this picture? As we looked at this together, what's missing from this picture? Anyone like to suggest an answer? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is missing from the picture. Jeremiah has not been mentioned once in this passage. And so not surprisingly, God's word has not been mentioned either. And we might ask, is that really significant? Might it not just be coincidence? Well, consider this. We have reached now chapter 41 of this long book. And this is the first passage in the book where Jeremiah has not appeared. And it's the first passage where God's word has not been heard. The only other chapter where that's the case in the whole book is chapter 52, the very last chapter. So I think the non-appearance of Jeremiah and God's word is in fact very significant. At the precise point where there's hope of a new beginning, a great opportunity to build something, God and his prophet make no appearance, not a trace. And the whole project dissolves into self-defeat and fear with a heap of casualties and the survivors fleeing from the scene. And the invisibility of God and his prophet is all the more striking because we know Jeremiah is here. He is in the middle of this. Last week, we saw him decide to stay in the ruins rather than leaving for Babylon. He stayed with Gedaliah at Mizpah, the very center of all this action. It's highly likely Jeremiah was among the captives Ishmael tried to take away to Ammon. But in this record of events, we hear nothing from him. We see nothing of him. He is silent and invisible. And yet we know Jeremiah stayed to serve. 
If he'd wanted to retire and keep out of things, he would have gone to Babylon. He was offered royal protection there. I would suggest to you, Jeremiah is silent and invisible, not because he has chosen to be, but because he is among people who don't care to hear from him. This is a man who has God's word in his mouth, and they all know that. But throughout this period of initial hope, descending into despair, they have not consulted God's prophet because they're not interested in hearing from God. As far as they're concerned, as they work to make something out of these ruins, God and his word are simply not part of the picture. And if we were to read on, we would find that underlined right at the beginning of chapter 42. Because as they are on the run, finally, in desperation, they do decide to consult Jeremiah. He appears again. And then having consulted him, they completely ignore what he says. I think that confirms, in the passage we've looked at this morning, Jeremiah was considered surplus to requirements. The attitude was, we have a real opportunity here. We can build something from these ruins, and we're much too busy to seek God. What could he tell us that we don't already know? Gedaliah figured he had enough wisdom to lead. He knew how to judge a man's character, but he made a tragic mistake with Ishmael. And chapter 42 will tell us, Johanan had a similar arrogance about him. When it came to running down to Egypt, he knew that was the best option. He didn't need to seek God. What's wrong with this picture is that God isn't in this picture. And the lesson for you and me is, when we have an opportunity in our lives, when something is opening up for us, we dare not approach it without reference to God. We dare not make our plans and move forward without care for His Word and His will. New beginnings will get nowhere good without God. I'm not talking about looking for some direct revelation from God about what we should do. This is about asking, what guidance does God's written word give me about what priorities I should have in this situation? What direction does it give me about what is most important? What divine wisdom is there for me in this situation? So if I'm considering marriage, for example, I dare not say to myself, I'm in love. What else could possibly matter? What could God add to my considerations about this? If I take the step of marriage without pretty careful consideration of God's word on marriage then something crucial is missing from the picture. And the outcome of my decision will probably not be pretty. The same goes for raising children. We have to search out the Bible's directions on that. 
if I make decisions about my career without bringing God into the picture, without asking how serving him fits into my career choices, then something crucial is missing from the picture. We could say the same about retirement. We dare not make plans for that without making sure God is very much part of the picture. Not just our fantasies about what we're going to do with all our time. Now, of course, the Bible is more than just an instruction manual for life. But the Bible is not less than an instruction manual for life. It is a lamp for our feet and a light on our path. If we ignore its direction and wisdom, we will not know where we should be going. And we will not stay on the right path. We'll make a mess of our lives and we will fail to achieve our potential. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that following God's word makes life easy. I don't suppose it would have made things perfectly smooth for this remnant in Judah if they'd followed God's word. But I do believe this passage is telling us they were blind and they were foolish and they were ill-equipped because they ignored God's word. Seeking God would not have magically removed their difficulties, not at all. But he would have led them through those difficulties. They would not have been reduced to fleeing in fear. And speaking about the people as a group leads us to the most significant application of this passage. It's not on the individual level as important as that is. The biggest application here is to the people of God. Remember, when this passage opened, it was a new beginning. It was a genuine watershed moment after the destruction of Jerusalem and the old regime disappearing in Judah. It was a real opportunity. And we had suspicions this might be the people who would inherit God's promises of a blessed future. As we saw those mourning pilgrims come down from the north, we wondered if this group might grow into the united people of God. He will bring God's blessing to all the nations. But now as we look back over the passage, knowing what we do, but their utter lack of concern for God's word, well, now it's obvious these are not the people. And the lesson is the true people of God don't leave God out of the picture. Bringing it right into the present, the church of Jesus Christ does not leave God out of the picture. We might think, well, that's a bit silly. What church would ever do that? Doesn't the name church give it away? The church is all about God. We exist to do his will. God's will and his word are the church's priorities. Well, that's how it should be. But how often has the church forgotten its priorities? How often has the church tried to make progress and impact the world 
while sidelining God and his word. How often has that happened through history? God's word has been sidelined, not officially, but in practice. In our passage this morning, there's no indication Jeremiah was being persecuted at this stage. He's not officially unwanted, but in practice he is. He's not mistreated from what we can tell, but he is ignored. God's word is not sought because it's not considered relevant to what the people are doing. And that's where the church can fail as well. Not so much by denying God's word, but by ignoring it. By planning and acting in ways that are not guided by Scripture. Falling into priorities that are just not scriptural priorities. The church can be quite successful at fitting in with our society's ideas about diversity and tolerance. We can succeed pretty well in assuring everyone they're okay. But in the process, we can lose the very message that will actually deliver people from their insecurity and their anxiety and their burden of guilt and shame. Because God's message is that we are not okay at all. Our sin is real. It is real slavery. And it really is damning for us. But in Jesus Christ, we can be made more than just okay. Our guilt can be forgiven. Our shame can be washed away completely. We can be welcomed into the family of God. When we make God's word the center of the picture, we have infinitely more to offer people than when we sideline God's word and try to build hope and community in other ways with other messages. Messages we think might be more effective than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So easy to fall into that, to slide into it. But the people of God are people who actively seek to place themselves under God's authority. They seek the guidance of his word always. They seek him not as the last resort, but as the first resort. Because they truly believe he knows best. He knows better than all of us. The people of God truly believe they cannot do better than to listen to God and obey him. And the end result of that is glory for God and blessing for his people. Here's how one writer explains it. It's such a contrast to what we've just seen in the ruins of Judah. When God's people hear his voice and obey, the church will be built up, God will be glorified, and the powers in the heavenly realms will marvel at his multifaceted wisdom that he could stoop to use people like us to make a name for himself. Referencing Ephesians chapter 3. 
So as we leave this passage, let's take this away with us. As a church, our commitment has to be that God and his word will be at the center of the picture. That nothing we do will leave God out of the picture. He will always be our first resort. And individually, let's look at our own lives. And let's ask the question, is God and his word at the center of that picture? Really? Not just in theory. As I plan for the future, as I deal with people around me, as I respond to challenges, and as I respond to successes in my life, can I say that God and his word dominate the picture? That my thinking and my decisions are driven by God and his word? Or would I have to say, actually, I need to make some changes? Because God and his word are not too noticeable in the picture. Maybe even missing from the picture altogether. Let's take a moment to consider that question personally and quietly. Bring it to God just where we sit in a moment or two of silence. Let's talk to him about the picture in our own lives. How does it look in terms of God and his word?